You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning. Uh, welcome to University Baptist Church. If you're a visitor, welcome back if you're, you're here all the time. Um, a few years ago, in fact, just thinking through the lectionary, it was three years ago, um, Taylor and I preached through the book of Job when this was, came up as a prompt. Um, and to set that up, I cited, as I'll do now, something I, I talk about a lot, which is the way we think about the stages of formation. Um, and I mention this a lot because I think, you know, there, we hold things very loosely here at UBC, but this is actually something, especially Taylor and I, maybe Taylor and I and Kieran have leaned in and thinking through what are we offering people in terms of their development here at UBC. But uh, a rough sketch would be that you, um, you start in fundamentalism as a believer, a form of fundamentalism, and then you move into evangelicalism, probably in your youth, when you're connecting with your heart and expressing exuberance, and then that begins to kind of uh, lose its foundation for you a little bit, probably when you are in the age of college or whatnot, and so we do some deconstruction. And then um, hopefully after all of this, you, you graduate into mysticism. Um, Job came back up, obviously in the lectionary cycle again. We did not do this series because um, I was interested in other things, and but I, I did want to revisit this text, and the reason is, is because I think um, for folks who hold the faith the way we do, um, I have heard in a lot of the streams that uh, we're having trouble putting it back together. And this is maybe a, a criticism that has long been leveled against UBC, but I really think that um, the end of Job offers us a handle, a beginning place uh, for doing that, a way to step into reconstruction. And so I want to get there towards the end of the sermon, um, but to do that, we have to enter into Job's story. To do that, I just want to give you some random facts that you're probably familiar with. Did you know that we cannot ever at the same time, know the position of an object in the universe and its velocity. Velocity. This is Heisenberg's principle. Because everything in the universe behaves both like a wave and a particle, we've come to discover. Did you know that um, both the theory of general relativity is true, or at least mathematically verifiable, but also quantum mechanics are true? And so this is really absurd for reasons I don't know because I'm not a scientist, but this thing that's true at a very small micro-level uh, it seems to contradict what we knew is true about the universe at a macro level, and yet they coexist. We know that language is so powerful that it affects your ability to perceive reality. Said differently, we have documented cases of people who cannot observe something because they don't have language for it. Geophysicists have found a way to turn peanut butter into a diamond. Uh, while listening to this, approximately a billion neutrino from the sun will pass through your body, the human brain takes in 11 million pieces of information a second, but you're only cognizant or perceive 40 of them. We have put a man on the moon. Uh, we have made it so you can watch television 30,000 feet in the air, traveling 700 miles an hour. We have built robots that can do surgery, but lest we get a little cocky, let us introduce some humility into this discussion. And remember, we're also the species that popularized Jersey Shore. We purchased pet rocks from somebody and made them rich and we consume billions of dollars of bottled water every year. Here are some of what's called the anthropic constants. These are the really minute details that it make possible for us to have life on the planet Earth. Our atmosphere is comprised of 21% oxygen. If it was 25%, fires would erupt spontaneously all over the Earth. If it was 15%, humans would suffocate. If the CO2 levels were any higher, we would have a runaway greenhouse gas effect. We might all burn up anyways. But um, incidentally, um, if the CO2 levels were any less, plants would not be able to maintain what they need for photosynthesis, and we'd all suffocate. 
if the gravitational force uh, were altered by 0.000, and here I'm going to give up and show you a slide, 37 zeros, 0.1%, our sun would not exist and neither would we. If the earth were 1% closer to the sun, the oceans would vaporize. If we were 2% further away from the sun, everything would freeze and rain, which makes life possible, would cease to exist. Um, because I know this kind of information can sometimes annoy scientists, let me instead quote one of them. In speaking about the expansion of the universe, Stephen Hawking said, if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller, even one part in a hundred thousand million million universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size. Full disclosure, I have no idea what that means, but Stephen Hawking said it, so it's probably very impressive. Speaking of scientists, as I mentioned, they sometimes, I think, get annoyed. Um, so when I first came across this info about the anthropic constants, I... I texted my friend British John and I said, hey, is, is this all true or is this the ploy of Christian apologists to try and woo us? And um, he sent me two articles and um, I couldn't understand either of them. But I think they meant that I'm right, but that there are better ways to make the point. So I just want you to know that I made an attempt to do some fact-finding for the sermon. Um, you've likely seen something similar, but I was poking around the internet trying to find a video to remind us just the scope of all of this, the telescope for the heart, so to speak. So this is just two minutes. Let's watch this. It's in 146 moons of our solar system, which doesn't count Pluto, because you're not a planet, Pluto. You're done, mate. It's over, yeah? Then there's the sun, which is a four and a half billion year old burning ball of hydrogen and helium. Several billion years from now, the sun will rage quit and turn into a red giant, gobbling whatever's left of our planet by then. Out again and we find the Milky Way. The Milky Way contains at least 100 billion stars. Stars can be by themselves or orbiting each other, called a binary star system, or occasionally a group of three, which is called a trinary, ternary. And that's not all. There's also nebulae, which are little starry wombs where lots of stars are born, moons, which either come from planets or random floating matter, and comets, meteors, and a million other types of astronomical bodies that there simply isn't time to talk about. At the center of our galaxy, and lots of other galaxies, are black holes. These are enormous wells of gravity that suck matter in and distort time. Fun fact, if you held your breath while falling into a black hole, you would die, obviously. And then there's the rest of the universe. The Milky Way, our galaxy, is one of at least 100 billion galaxies, each one prettier than the last. Since there are 100 billion galaxies, with at least 100 billion stars in them, that means there are at least 100 billion trillion stars in the universe. The universe itself, as far as we're aware, is about 93 billion light years across. Or to put it another way, if you were traveling at the speed of light, 300 million meters per second, it would take you 93 billion years to get from one side to the other, except for the fact that the universe is expanding and the expansion is getting faster, which literally makes no sense. And uh, yeah, that's, that's about it, really. Oh, except there might be parallel universes and hidden dimensions of space and we completely forgot about time. The universe began, if you can call it that, about 14 billion years ago, and the first few galaxies turned up a few hundred million years later. A few hundred million years after that, you get the Milky Way, another few and you've got a very young Earth, then oceans, then life a bit later, reptiles, dinosaurs, game over for dinosaurs, sorry chaps, and finally all of our shit here. Or here, or here, maybe? It's, it's kind of hard to tell because we're so insignificant. That may be the end, I don't know, he keeps pausing. <laughs> I cut that one kind of bad, I apologize. Um, you get the point, and you can find better versions of this, and you can pour over more fascinating statistics. Whenever I do this, I think of my favorite psalm, in which verse four of the psalmists asks the question, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Humans that you should care for them. 
Uh, I like the book of Job because I feel like it has grown with me. Said differently, I think it has anticipated me. Most of this 42-chapter book is given to the question of human pain. For 36 chapters, Job and his friends make their attempt at theodicy, which turns out to be a series of best guesses. And then finally, in chapter 38, God speaks. For 36 chapters, though, before this, God has been silent. We might guess that God is listening, but in 38, God finally speaks. And what does God say in response to this painfully honest question or series of questions we have? What answer is going to be sufficient? God asks a series of rhetorical questions which have in mind evoking a sense of wonder. You think that after all of this time, God would have entered the scene wagging God's finger with righteous indignation. If there's anybody who could have been above reproach and had the, the, the right to yell and scream in the most moment would have been God. But God endures all these accusations. God could have thrown some shade, but God didn't. And how does God show up? God could have been a theologian or a philosopher or God help us, God could have showed up as a preacher, but that's not what happens. When the whole universe was listening and ready for an answer to the question uh, about pain that we've been asking for eternity, God finally shows up as a poet. I'm going to give you, this is a trivia moment. I'm going to give you a list of four names, and you see in my revealing them if you can group them together and, and figure out what the, uh, how they're like each other, okay? Um, Lady Gaga, J-Lo, Garth Brooks, Amanda Gorman. I bet with the last one, it snapped into place, right? Because not only was that the moment when we were introduced to her, but they, of course, all showed up and were part of President Biden's inauguration. But we remember Amanda Gorman, yes, because this is her first moment, because of what poetry can do to us. So God says things, or asks things, I should say, like, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who shut up the sea behind the doors, Job. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked the recesses of the deep? What is the way of the abode of light and where does the darkness reside? We might contemporize these questions and put on the lips of God questions like, have you ever played with the weather patterns, Job? Have you considered the relationship between mass and how it affects your experience of time? Have you ever looked at the universe from another dimension? Tell me, Job. Have you walked around in any of the other two trillion galaxies? Have you ever watched an atom split from the inside? And the answer to all these questions is, of course not. They're rhetorical in nature. I have said many times, I've quoted Abraham Joshua Heschel, who uh, said, never once in my life did I ask God for success or fame or wisdom or wealth. I asked God for wonder, and he gave it to me. Uh, this summer, my family did a 15-state multinational park tour of the U.S., which um, took us, among others, to, to Glacier. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever been there, but the park runs north to south. It's part of the Rockies. It is the Rockies. And there's one road, basically in the middle, that it wears like a kind of belt that runs east to west called the Road to the Sun. And it's called that because you basically just drive up forever. And uh, at some point, like at the time when the clouds are next to you instead of um, above you, the road gets very squiggly. And it's like the, the engineers gave a crayon to a two-year-old and said, what do you think we should do? It was, right? Um, which is very disheartening because you're so high up in the air. Uh, and if you're like not in the interior lane, 
there's a like three to 4,000 foot cliff just to the right of you, which is very confusing to me because if you ever go to any of the national parks, they're very vigilant about safety. It's like keep 10 miles between you and the bear and the buffalo and they have all kinds of signs and the park rangers are very, um, very committed to your safety. But like you get in a car and they're like, we've got nothing for you. Um, so, you know, we're, we're uh, on the road to the sun and um, um, well, like to add injury to insult too, um, there's like a, a safety wall but it doesn't even come like halfway up above your, the middle of your tires. Almost like they just had some junior rangers sweep a pile of pebbles to slow your plunge to death. Uh, so we're near the top of the road of the sun and I look over at my wife and we, by the way, are in big blue. We have a 12 passenger van, we got six kids. And so um, this, the, the car, we love it, but it's not exactly a beacon of agility and stability, right? So I look at her and she is white knuckled with like a grip on things that she can grab. And I haven't seen her grip anything this tight since she was in labor with Wendell. And I say, hey, babe, like, don't you trust me? And she's like, hell no, I don't trust you. We're gonna die. And so I put the car in park and I like, I lean over to her window and look and I am filled with terror and wonder. And that thing that makes for the terror is also the thing that makes for the wonder. That night, we were in the safety of the, the valley below us in the west side of the mountains. We, had a, we were on a ranch. It was very picturesque. It was the 4th of July, and they were shooting off fireworks and spearfish nearby. And so I have the Rockies to my back, and I'm leaning on a fence post. And, and watching, yes, the fireworks, but the unique experience I had here is listening to these things ricochet off the mountains behind me, these massive booms. And I thought, oh, this is what Wendell Berry's talking about. Here's my point. Nobody ever shows up at Glacier National Park, gets out of their car, and says, gosh, I am awesome right? Like it's, it's the sense of losing yourself and the grandeur and the wonder. Uh, a few weeks ago, I got my oil changed at, I don't know, I paid like $100. It was stupid. And so at least they gave me a free car wash, which that's the one thing I get for free from my kids and their child labor. But I'm like, okay, I got a free car wash. And so um, I decided to put our two foster children in, in our vehicle and I drove them to the car wash. And you get in there and it's automatic. You put your car in neutral. I just turn it on and I watch their faces filled with wonder as the things went across our windshield. It was mesmerizing. Um, I just, yesterday, my wife and I went to Fort Worth to see a, a off-Broadway show, and now that I'm in the middle of the sermon illustration, I can't remember the name. Um, Come Away Far, or something like this. Um, Come From Away, thank you. Oh, theater people, thank you. Um, Come From Away, fascinating. It's about uh, Canada. I love Canada. And um, I was reminded very quickly, I went back to, to Broadway. Two, a few years ago, I went to New York for the first time. Uh, John Lennon said if he lived in Roman times, he'd live in Rome. Uh, where else? And he said, today America is the Roman Empire and New York is Rome itself. And man, was he right. They designed Times Square for Enneagram 3s. You walk into that place and the whole world is right there. It was like Disneyland. And that night, we went to our first Broadway show ever. And we saw King Kong. Snooty people will tell you that was the worst show on Broadway, but that's only because they've never seen a 20-foot, 2,000-pound monkey fight an equal-sized cobra on stage. It was mesmerizing. Wonder. And then there's the movies that have been doing it to us our whole life. In 1993, Steven Spielberg brought dinosaurs to life. In 94, Andy Dufain escaped the Shawshank. In 1999, Neo escaped the Matrix. In 2014, Jessica Chastain used love to cross space and time. In 2016, Amy Adams translated alien language and saved the earth. And in 1964, George Bailey discovered it's a wonderful life. Wonder, 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 
Job got lost in wonder. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me I did not know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. This is the moment in the story where Job breaks through to another level of faith. It's, it's not the one that was taught to him. It's not the one that he received in his heart with a prayer one night years ago. It's not the God he read about on paper or even saw in the creeds. It's a faith that has an experience with God. It's an experience that Job had when he was broken all the way down and the different containers he used to hold faith broke with them. But let's talk about God for a minute. Um, I used to really be bothered by God's response in this part of the story. I mean, what a letdown. Here God has a chance to set the record straight and doesn't seem to answer the question. But let me pose a question in response to God's response, which would be this. What answer could God have given that would have been satisfactory to us? If we're considering the problem of evil with Job and it's personal, what answer would work? What answer could God possibly give us? What kind of calculus could God help us make our way through where we would get to the point where he said, yeah, okay, the Holocaust was worth it. I see why you did that. I think the point is that no matter what the answer was, it would be a disappointing one. We need an answer from beyond our scope of knowing. Uh, now, here's the problem. When we admit that we need answers from beyond knowing, if we concede, as Richard Rohr has suggested, that true spirituality is caught instead of taught, if we locate meaning and wonder, then faith can lose the kind of objectivity that we're comfortable with. But I'm going to be honest with you eventually that's going to happen anyways. I recently saw a clip of The Good Place and I was reminded by Chidi that Kierkegaard said, we don't take a leap of faith, we take a leap into faith. Um, and I think that difference is subtle, but it's really important. Let me give that some teeth. I think what that means is that our faith moves from this place of certainty to a place of conviction, to a place of confession, this is why at the heart of the Romans road in Romans 10, 9, it's our confession and belief that save us, not our knowing beyond a shadow of doubt. Um, I always have one book at church that I'm perusing, rereading. It's usually something I've read before and I, and I do it basically to remind myself of the good things that have been said. And I was paging through Barbara Brown Taylor's Leaving Church and um, I'll tell you something that stuck out to me this time. It jumped out at me, really. It, it was, um, she writes about her faith response after her father had died of cancer, and my father has died of cancer as well. And um, what was stranger still for me in, in rereading this was the precision with which she described my faith experience in the aftermath. She says, Not until my father died did I feel my way into a different concept of faith. I discovered that my faith did not have the least thing to do with certainty. Insofar as it had anything to do with faith at all, that faith consisted of trusting God in the face of my vastly painful ignorance, to gather up the life in that room and do with it what God alone knew how to do. Since then, I have learned to prioritize holy ignorance more highly than religious certainty and to seek companions who have arrived at that same place. Um, you now, if you're like me, all the talk of uh, confessing and believing the lack of certainty Catching the faith as opposed to being taught it can make you a little bit nervous because the only thing I've ever been able to catch are like colds and flights and vigilante toddlers running around a parking lot. Um, I always want to know what I can do. I'm a doer. I do think there is a way for us to unfurl our sails, so to speak, and move into mysticism with some intention. 
There is a way to enter the space of wonder. Uh, a few years ago, we had a pastoral associate, Emmy, and she uh, was doing a graduate program in higher education. And one of the things she shared with me that really came alive was this theory by William Perry about student development. And in brief, it's that um, students start in dualism where there's very clear problems and very clear solutions. And then students might move to multiplicity where there are some things that are solvable, but um, we don't have answers for yet. And we have that kind of epistemic community, humility. And then there's relativism, which is um, problems have a reason and they have a specific context with which they can be solved. And if you're listening to this and you think about the fourfold uh, stages of development I, I provided at the beginning, you can see some very clear correspondence. So what is the last stage for Perry? It is commitment within relativism which he describes as the integration of knowledge from other sources with personal experience and reflection. Students make a commitment to values that matter to them and learn to take responsibility for committed beliefs. There is a recognition that the acquisition of knowledge is an ongoing activity. If I could highlight something, if I could offer you something, if you're on the threshold of, I've already taken it apart and I'm trying to put it back together, I would say this. We learned to commit to values and we take responsibility for our beliefs. And we all know this. We know this is the way it works. Good things, meaningful things, they usually come through commitment. Stanley Harawas has said that we can't possibly know what we mean when we say our wedding vows. And the longer I'm married, I think that that's right. I didn't know what I meant when I said my wedding vows, but being committed to that space is what's made room for the wonder that I have experienced. Uh, in Mark 12, and I cite Mark because in his telling of the story, he's the only one who includes four categories. When asked by uh, a person of the law what the greatest commandment is, Jesus gives the answer that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and here, all of our strength. And I think that's incredibly helpful because as you move out of passion of evangelicalism and the certainty and the exuberance that exists there as the out of the certainty of fundamentalism where you learn to use your mind and and out of deconstruction where you also learn to take things apart to pick up faith again and do it and that last phase takes great strength um so i'll tell you what i think mystics do this is what they've learned to do well but this is guesswork because it's ongoing and i'm, I'm not there yet I think mystics read their Bibles and they enjoy what God has to say to them. I think they pray fervently without expectation and are just, be, are just glad to be in the presence of God. I think they abide by the rules and have the wisdom to do that and they also have the wisdom to know when to break them. I think they are quietly critical without being cynical. I think they take more joy in watching other people succeed than they do in cheering themselves on. I think they believe all things, they hope all things, and they endure all things. I think they have taken a leap back into faith with a second naivete that is full of hope and promise, and I think they are fueled by a holy curiosity and a holy ignorance. Uh, my sister interviewed my dad three months before he died in a, a long-form interview that we have recorded. It's, it's wonderful. She was able to ask him all the kinds of questions you'd hope you'd be able to ask somebody near the end of their life. Um, and one thing my dad said in that interview that I think about all the time is this. He said he thought he was a much better grandfather than he was a father. Uh, I thought my dad was a great father. It's, I'm not bringing this up to, to make light of that. 
Um, but I think being 40, having four children, two foster children, being in the midst of life, uh, I knew what he meant. Because um, now that I'm a father, I'm acutely aware of my deficiencies. Instead of enjoying these days that are fleeting and slipping by, and I know that, and I look at it every day, um, I, I'm in this middle stage of life where I'm fighting for my ego and my identity. I worry about paying bills. I worry about my vocational trajectory. I worry about house projects. I have a gnawing anxiety about coming college expenses. I worry about planning family vacations and finding the time and money for that. I think about whether or not I'm doing this job well. I work on making time for our competing family activities, and I, I do all the things you do when you think you're becoming something. Um, but grandparents, like, they've already done all of that. And they know what the fruit of that worry and that effort is. And that's to not say it's bad. I mean, some of my disposition, my approach to life is probably necessary, right? Like, it's my job to worry and plan and scheme and, and do those things. Um, and so what my dad did, though, is he brought intentionality to loving his grandkids that he wasn't able to bring as a father. He made a commitment to a belief about people and about his family late in his life that allowed him to marvel at his grandkids. Did he forget about the horrors he saw in Vietnam? No. Did he dismiss the pain he experienced in 32 years of pastoring? No. Uh, did he forget about his failures as a husband and a father? No, but that did not stop him from enjoying the wonder he had to share with his grandchildren in that space. UBC, may we be a people who commit to our beliefs in the midst of ambiguity. May we be a people who wear our convictions with both passion and humility. May we be a people of generosity and curiosity. And may we be a people who are filled with wonder. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would teach us to be a people who love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. That as we move through these very healthy stages of knowing you, that we would feel the constance, or constant presence of your presence and that um, in that moving, we would have a deepened sense of knowing. We thank you, God, that you are a generous teacher and that you um, disclose of yourself in different ways that we can see and feel and experience. Um, but I pray that, God, the last, the last word and the last experience we have with you would be one of wonder. Thank you for being a God who is both big enough and small enough for us to, um, to know and to love. And um, we ask that your spirit would map us on that trajectory of knowing you at each phase. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. At the conclusion of the preaching portion of the worship, we like to take time and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit together. Perhaps the Spirit will correct something I have said incorrectly, or perhaps the Spirit will minister something new. So let's listen. <laughs>